Welcome to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're back with Ian and... With Mike. And we together are rereading and talking about and speculating about the Aubrey Matcher novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, we are still in reverse of the medal. Help us get oriented here. Where did we get to last week? What stage in the book are we up to this week? Oh, thanks, Ian. Would love to. So last week, you know, we know that Stephen worked hard to lessen Jack's sentence. Uh, Blaine, Sir Joseph Blaine, solidified a new mission for Jack and Stephen, and Jack was sentenced to the pillory and a 2,500-pound fine. At the pillory in last week's episode, Jack was protected and cheered by a huge crowd of seamen. So we just, you know... Love that scene in the canon. Uh, Now, this week, Stephen and Blaine talk as Jack prepares to take the surprise to see to finalize her crew. He's kind of a shakeout, see which which hands he wants. He's got got a bless with an abundance of potential hands. Stephen's French is tested when he's invited to a mysterious and perhaps dangerous encounter. An old friend turns up with a missing possession and vital information in the last chapter of Reverse of the Metal. The last chapter. Mike, there's all sorts of story hairs running here. I wonder how many of them are going to get caught and trapped by the end of the chapter. I wonder how many of them are still going to be running (laughs) into the next book. Too true. (laughs) So we sit down in the opening paragraphs of this chapter um, with... Stephen sitting down with Sir Joseph Blaine, negotiating with a third functionary, this Mr. Lowndes of the Foreign Office. I'm like, we've got this sense of impending actual seagoing action. Is this real? Or is Patrick O'Brien toying with us? But Stephen's talking about fitting out and plans and money. And we said last time that Stephen had noticed that now that he's got money, he's become unusually (laughs) scrupulous about getting it spent and he's haggling hard with the foreign office Lowndes is trying to set out the terms of the engagement he's trying to set out the scope of the deal here he says proceed to no action at present but unless circumstances are extraordinarily favorable you should confine yourself to making contacts in Valparaiso and Santiago so they're off to Chile and the foreign office guy here is trying to put uh boundaries around the scope of what Stephen is empowered to do so they get to talking about money and mike you and i know that scope and money line up in life don't they there's a daily payment of an amount less 90 percent of the aggregate value of prices taken on the cruise and then Stephen says hey, yeah 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 but hold on a second there's wear and tear i absolutely insist he says 170 pounds wear and tear and he says per lunar month mike this is this is a great little a glance into Stephen there. He's showing us a little touch of the Mrs. Williams here, right? A, a lunar month is not a calendar month. A lunar month is 28 days. So he's rewarding himself within effect for 30 months of wear and tear in a, in a 12 calendar month year. Smart guy. And Lowndes can see this for what he is, but he knows he's in a weak position. We get this very sulky agreement by Mr. Lowndes. And as the deal is getting sealed, Lowndes hands over this list of pages of contacts, notables, military men from what is known as the Chilean Council for Liberation, this kind of umbrella body that's trying to coordinate the the, the change of regime in Chile. UK intelligence specifies that it's the council and not 
His Britannic Majesty's government, who are officially providing all of the assistance and sponsoring the mission. So there's a bit of plausible deniability here for the UK Foreign Office. That's the kind of thing that they like to set up. Government, if there's any problem, government is going to disavow all knowledge of the mission. So like every special forces operative ever parachuted into enemy territory, Stephen knows that if he messes up, he's on his own. And on behalf of the committee, we get a little contribution from this mysterious Colonel Warren. Colonel Warren provides codes and he provides the names of people with whom Stephen can communicate. And to put the tin lid on everything, the little cherry on top of this very nicely frosted cake Sir Joseph Blaine hands over a letter of exemption, which means that the surprises men are protected from being pressed. And furthermore, he gets a letter of draft, basically allowing him to go and get refitted, get supplies at any of His Majesty's naval yards around the world. So Stephen's driven a hard bargain, and I think he's getting good value for it. He really has. It's it's you know it's sort of a different view of Stephen Matron than we've seen before. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but. It, you know, he's still, as we'll see, a little penny wise, pound foolish from time to time. But we, we just love him because he's Stephen, right? Yeah. So it, they've kind of wrapped up this negotiation. They're at Blaine's house and everybody's headed out. And Blaine asks his housekeeper to please, you know, hurry and, and serve dinner now. And he's apologizing to Matron for this guy lounge from the foreign office sort of going on so long. You know, he says, you know, you would think we're negotiating a treaty with some, you know, hostile power, not, not with, you know, one of our friends like you. So he, Blaine is very concerned. He doesn't want all the seafood dishes that he's bought for Stephen to go bad. And he says, knowing that you people of the old faith are required to mortify your flesh today. Says mm. Blaine. <laughs> and that, um, you know, I, I just thought that was a great little line here. You have, you know, you're required to mortify your flesh. So I thought, well, just for fun, let's let's look at the the Webster dictionary here. And mortifying yeah. the flesh, it says, refers to a custom once followed by devout Christians who would starve themselves, deprive themselves of every comfort, <laughs> even whip themselves in order to subdue their bodily desires and punish themselves for their sins, share in the suffering of Jesus, or in this case. Eat seafood on Fridays. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think what was what was the novel, The Da Vinci Code, where there's that secret society of Jesuits. I think if they were just going around eating seafood under sufferance, I think it wouldn't have had quite the same mystique, would it? <laughs> oh, I have, to, I have to eat shrimp on Friday. <laughs> that's right. Oh my gosh, did you see that guy? Right, right. I, I, I think he had, uh, you know, a, a little of the the other white meat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Well. You know, Blaine compliments Stephen, as you said, on his financial tenacity. He's mm. like, wow, you know, you, Stephen, you drive a hard bargain here. And Stephen says, it's wealth that does it. Ever since I had a great deal of money, I found that I much dislike being parted from it, particularly in a sharp or an overbearing manner. Whereas formerly, I would meekly allow myself to be choused or bullied or put down. I now counterattack with a confidence and an asperity that quite surprise me. And it nearly always answers. So, <laughs> Stephen then drinks to Blaine's success, you know, Blaine's mission inside naval intelligence. And Blaine tells him that he and Warren are getting pretty close to uncovering this rat. You know, he says that now there are only 20 more suspects, kind of 20 men who are capable of treason at this high level. And then Blaine goes on to explain some more. He says, Warren is much more intelligent than you might suppose from his military face and his shape. You know, Warren being kind of a, a little bit of a beast. 
Uh, Blaine says, he's a eunuch, you know, and a man without. If you please, sir, says Mrs. Barlow severely at the door. And Sir Joseph, blushing, led Stephen to the dining rooms. What, what is it about men who like to talk about men parts with Stephen? There's, there's like hardly a chapter goes by without Stephen getting invited to discuss some guy's nether regions. It's too true. And I, you know, I, I think it's a little bit more of O'Brien's kind of semi potty humor that just yeah. keeps us rolling along here. Oh, Absolutely. Gosh. So the, the, everything is looking okay here. Stephen says to Blaine that he has now has all the hands that he wants. We get this hint about just how generously manned the surprise is going to be, given that it's Jack who's in charge and given that it's a privateering mission rather than, you know, blockading Toulon that he's going to be about. And he's going to take these, this crew of hands on a short cruise to test them out and make his final selection. Imagine that, being able to choose from this crew of prime hands. So Stephen's catching the coach tomorrow to join them. And we always know that Stephen getting on a coach results in a punctual arrival, right? Right. right. Stick, stick a pin in that. And Blaine says, I'm really, really glad about this. He's, he's not surprised that Jack's having all his good fortune choosing his men. So we got quite a lot of reverse exposition from the lawyer, right, immediately uh, after the trial result came through. Now we get a bit of reverse exposition from Sir Joseph Blaine about what was going on in the days leading up to the pillory. He says that Quinborough, the judge at Drax's trial, had actually been far less fortunate in public opinion terms um, than he had supposed. He is, he said, perhaps the most unpopular man in the nation at present. He is hooted in the street and the radicals are clean forgotten in the general outcry against the sentence and the conduct of the trial. And everybody had praised the sailors who'd shown up to defend Jack at the pillory. Blaine says the government had mishandled the situation really well, delaying the pillory until everyone was all indignant and stoked up, delaying it until many ships happened to be close by. He said time and tide were perfect for bringing them up the river and taking them down again. Many sailors had been granted leave to come and the press gang had come ashore on the pretense of finding deserters. Mike, it's nice. I get a little warm glow thinking, aha, Quinborough, you got your just desserts. I I still have a feeling, though, that if Jack Aubrey were in this conversation, he'd say, I'd I'd be quite happy for Justice Quinborough to be up on a pedestal and being showered with peerages if I could just get my good name back and get a command in the Navy. Oh, too true. Being justified after the event is nice, but it really doesn't doesn't make up in any way for the loss that Jack is now kind of dealing with here. Yeah, too true. Well, Blaine asked Stephen if he's read the Reverend Martin's latest pamphlet. Stephen oh, says boy. he has not. And he, and he wonders if it's, you know, that pamphlet he's been meaning to write about true weevils. And Blaine says, well, it's called A Statement of Certain Immoral Practices Prevailing in the Royal Navy, together with some remarks upon flogging and impressment. And Blaine adds, scorpions ain't in it. Uh, so Martin exempts the frigate S and Captain A, but, says Blaine, comes down on the rest like a thousand of bricks. So Blaine is saying that you know Martin's never going to get another ship and that he hopes, in, in O'Brien's words, he hopes his wife brought him a reasonable fortune so that he may continue to indulge in the luxury of telling his betters of their faults. I I love that thought from Blaine, but Blaine is very sorry to hear that, in in fact, 
Martin does not have any good fortune, that marriage has not brought him any, uh, you know, anything, and that Martin had planned to continue sailing with Jack and Stephen as a naval parson. So it's like, sorry, that, I think that door is now closed yeah. to you. And, Very unfortunate timing by our friend Martin. Ooh, couldn't be worse. And, and Blaine's feeling particularly bad for him because he loves all these beetles that Martin brought him. And, yeah. and he had just the evening before knocked one of them off the table. In, in, in kind of his haste to go get it, he stepped on it and <gasps> broke its back. So, you know, it's this special beetle kind of from the Amazon basin. And he's hoping that if Stevens kind of crossing by you know, the Orinoco River, that he might just bring him another one back. <laughs> he would be so kind. And this does a very clever little thing. It puts us in mind of this international kind of trade in interesting biological and botanical specimens. We had a little bit of it in the last episode, um, or maybe two episodes ago, where we were talking about naturalists who gathered collections from other people. And as we are now kind of comfortably back in the world of naturalists sending each other specimens or borrowing specimens from each other, Blaine hands over this parcel of bones that Cuvier in France had sent to to Banks, the naturalist in the UK, to give to Stephen. And that starts to ring a bell with us. Not only are we talking about the world of natural specimens, that reminds us that we know that this cartel, this semi-secret packet ship going across the channel is often used as a route of communication between secret agents on either side of the channel. So Stephen guesses that these bones might be solitaire bones, and we know he's written learned treatises about solitaires and other rare birds, and he goes back to his club, Blacks. He takes the bones out of the gannet skin, and initially we get this disappointment. He sees that these are just regular bird bones. They're not bones of a solitaire or a dodo, and Stephen wonders for a moment why they were sent and he looks through the bones and he looks through the skin and he found some writing that looks like a note from a taxidermist. And I'll, I'll try the French here, Mike. It says, Si la personne qui s'intéresse au pavillon de partance voudrait bien donner rendez-vous en laissant un mot chez Jules, traiteur à Frith Street, elle en aurait des nouvelles. So Google Translate helps us out here, at least part of the way. Google Translate says this whole bunch of French means if the person interested in the departure lodge could make an appointment by leaving a note with Jules, a caterer in Frith Street, they would hear from them. And my, I, I'm straight away thinking, I'm not sure Google's done right there by this phrase, pavillon de partance. And then we dig into Google Translate just this phrase, pavillon de partance. And pavillon de partance in, on its own as a phrase translated by Google means departure flag which isn't making very much more sense, and Stephen is still stumped. And guess what? As luck would have it, Stephen runs into Admiral Smythe, who, now that once this word, this phrase is dropped into conversation, says, oh, yes, pavillon de partance. It's the blue flag with a white square in the middle that we sailors hoist at the foretopmast head to signify that we mean to sail directly. And, Mike, this as all sailors know, is the international code flag for the signal letter P. And the Admiral goes on to give it its colloquial name, which perhaps should turn a light on here for Stephen. The Admiral says it is generally called the Blue Peter. Hmm. Nice. Nice. 
Now, the Blue Peter immediately takes Stephen back, and as you say, and should take us back, you know, a number of years to the painful memories from the surgeon's mate. Yeah. And we've called it, you know, Stephen, Jack, Yellow, they're in prison, and Diana tries to save Stephen's life. He's, you know, he's on trial, uh, being tried as a, an English agent. And Diana takes this enormous blue diamond and tries bribing a minister's wife with it, with the blue Peter. Um, now, we won't dwell on the fact that this enormous bribe absolutely convinced the French that Stephen must be a very, very important agent and almost cost him his life. But luckily, before that happened, Talleyrand and some influential Frenchmen decided that they wanted to use Stephen to take a peace proposal to England. So they broke him out of prison before the other French intelligence services could do him in. Wow. And Duhamel, who was described as a senior member of one of the French intelligence services, convinced Stephen to accept this mission under the conditions that, you know, that all, as Stephen bargained, it, all three of them and Diana would get safe passage back to England and that Diana's diamond would be returned when possible in the future. So, Mike, th this opens up the possibility here that right at the very, very end of this story, we get back to the world of Stephen and Diana. Right. And it's it's a real blinding flash, I think. For Steve. He's, he's going to have a couple of blinding flashes in this chapter. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, all of a sudden, he's back in the world of thinking, Diana invested this in my safety. Diana, I might get this back. What what does this what kind of leverage or currency does this give me in my ability to go and find Diana and rebuild my relationship? I mean, I I don't know about the heavens parting and angels singing because he's not that kind of not that kind of person. He's a bit more of a skeptic, but he must be thinking, well, maybe there's something here for me. Right. Anyway, Stephen doesn't know who had sent the message. That he's still scratching his head. By the way, Mike, as you and I've talked about this. I, I think he shouldn't be scratching his head. I think there are some really important clues here about who sent the message. But never mind. That to one side. He still realizes, so he still thinks that this could be a trick to get him abducted or murdered. And we already know he did a bit of a swerve earlier on around this potential mission to go and help or rescue Madame de la Feuillade in northwestern France. And his antennae are twitching a little bit that this could be the same kind of proposition. So anyhow, he sends a note agreeing to meet the man in the remote part of Regent's Park that morning. He plans to meet the man and then catch the slow coach to Shelmerston at noon to sail with Jack in the surprise on the evening tide. So he spends the rest of the evening trying to get his sea chest in order. I, uh, Stephen's not had a great time with chests and boxes and trunks and suitcases in this last couple of books. He's been kind of haunted by that little brown chest with the bearer bonds in it. And now he's kind of haunted by his inability to get his own personal sea chest in order here. He realizes that he's always he always leaves a drawer or something out and then has to repack and get it all back in there. I'm thinking to myself, you need Mrs. Broad, you need Sophie, or you need Diana to kind of lean over you and sort this all out. But he hasn't got them. He's having to do it by himself. He finishes at midnight, and he realizes that the pocket pistols that he normally carries and wanted to take with him for this rendezvous in the morning are at the bottom of this chest. And Mike, we, we get a little flash here of how it's not really heaven's parting and angels singing really for Stephen. He's still in a dark place. He thinks to himself, bah, life is not worth it. 
I don't know if he really means that or if that's just something he's saying in his little interior monologue here. But he says, oh, pistols, if they're going to kill me, they're going to kill me. So as he goes to bed, just to cheer himself up, <laughs> he reads Martin's pamphlet and he thinks about how Mrs. Martin had brought no fortune to Nathaniel Martin himself. Martin had no prospects and we realise that Nathaniel Martin, in Stephen's own words to himself, had relied entirely upon Jack Aubrey's patronage and Jack Aubrey's permanence. I'm like, this is, this, this is pretty dark territory for Stephen to be thinking here. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, okay, uh, you know, life's not worth it, unpacking and getting my pistols. Wait a minute. You know, Stephen's going to go meet some unknown, perhaps intelligence agents from France in the morning. He can't be un, you know, bothered to unpack these pistols. He thinks about how Martin had relied on Jack Aubrey's permanence. You know, this permanence word. Ah, this permanence will. It's not going to be there for Martin. And and I'm starting to think. You know, this this would be a nice way of starting to shade some foreshadowing here. Mm. This could be quite the setup. Worries me a little bit. Yeah. I'd, I'd... O'Brien, right? He's giving us foreshadowing and doom and portent in the, you know, two pages into the last chapter of the novel. He should be doing this right at the beginning. And we've talked about this before, haven't we, Mike? That O'Brien doesn't really seem to obey the conventions of when in the story arc novel should begin and end. And I think he's showing signs of playing with us a little bit here with the flow of this story. And here's one of the clues for me, Mike that maybe Stephen ought to get a clue about who sent this note. I, I was I was reading this kind of uneasiness and foreboding and thinking all the way back to Surgeon's Mate when Stephen had chosen to trust an, uh, a blind anonymous contact with somebody whose bona fides were really not very well established. And he ought to have a bit of a clue at this point, I think. As a reader, certainly, I'm thinking that. Maybe I'm thinking that as a reader who knows what's coming. But I'm thinking, come on, Stephen. You can figure out who this is. It was a great conversation with all those hypotheticals going back and forth between yeah. the two of them as they yeah. kind of felt each other out. That that was a fabulous scene. Yeah. And I was fascinated. In, you know, I, I guess I'm used to the tube and Regent's Park and I'm going, you know, it's like, you know, I'm going to meet him in this way remote, out of the way place. What? Tell, tell us a little bit. Can you give us kind of a, a setting for Regent's Park here? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. So... If you know a little bit of London geography, you'll know that most of the London action in this book so far has taken place in what you might call uh, fancy West London around Piccadilly, St. James's Street, Green Park, that that area, the area of you know, privilege and aristocracy and the establishment and all the gentlemen's clubs. If you have a tube ticket and you can ride around London, it's a 15-minute short tube ride to where Regent's Park is. But Regent's Park is north and a little west um, of where all the action has taken place so far. So on a, for a pedestrian or somebody, you know, in a, in a, in a horse and cart, it's quite a way away from the central London area where Stephen normally hangs out and has his assignations. And I think I spot a little anachronism here and maybe listeners can help me out. Sometimes when I spot these, I finally realized that actually O'Brien was doing it fine all along. Regent's part named after the Prince Regent, the Prince whom we've already talked about in this book, who would become King George the fourth. In, later on in the real timeline, after all these uh, these actions are done, um, Regent's Park is where London Zoo is these days. If you know London Zoo, it's where London Business School is. If you know where London Business School is, and it's got all these beautiful white 
glorious, gorgeous Grand Regency buildings, and you can see it as you walk along between kind of between Paddington and King's Cross. But Regent's Park itself wasn't really brought about as an idea by the architects until quite late on. The first of the grand residential properties that would become cornerstones of Regent's Park wasn't built until 1816. Regent's Park as a park to visit, I think, wasn't open until 1835. So, yeah, Stephen's looking ahead a little bit to a time when Regent's Park is there for him to walk around. But... I think I think we can let it slide, right? It's very nice that O'Brien found a way to mention the the name of the region again in the context of something that Stephen's trying to do to further his his rescue from this terrible intrigue. So I think we can let that slide. Yeah, and and it's great fun to sort of try to trip up Patrick O'Brien when we have the internet and he's living in Collier with <laughs> with his mind. That's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, he gets exactly. the best of us. <laughs> oh well, in the morning. Stephen thinks, well, he's probably going to be one of these Frenchmen who's traveling back and forth from France to England to meet with the Comte de Lille, the, the, the du jour, King Louis the 18th here. Mm. So there is this, you know, the, the man who would be king of France, had they a monarchy now, the, the kind of the claimant to the throne, who's living at Hartwell in Buckinghamshire. So O'Brien tells us that French loyalists came to visit him as well as some of Bonaparte's ministers who were kind of essentially hedging their bets. And British intelligence would actually look at the number of Bonaparte's ministers coming and going, you know, say, you know, are the people with insider information in Paris nervous or feeling real confident? If they're nervous, there are going to be more of them coming to visit right now. And there had been very few recently. So it sounds like despite all these, you know, the stock market fraud manipulation about peace, you know, the French are feeling pretty good about their chances at the moment. Mm. So Stephen's coach rides towards Regent's Park, and he's thinking, you know, actually, these people that are going back and forth, the French intelligence services have started slipping agents in. And sometimes it's French agents, sometimes it's double agents, sometimes it's triple agents. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm from the UK spying on France, but now France has turned me against Britain. But in fact, Britain is using back against France or vice versa there. So, you know, uh, he's, this, has, he's, so this, uh, this, this has a bit of a John le Carre feel about it. It's like meeting on a bridge in Potsdam, you know, in, in Berlin circa 1962. I can hear zither music in the background and see guys in fog shrouded streets with trilby hats and raincoats. It sounds very, very mysterious to me. I think very much like that. And, and uh, probably so in Stephen's mind as well, because he's thinking, I'm glad I dug out my pistols, oh. though how I shall ever bring myself to face that chest again, I do not know. <laughs> Mr. Practical Stephen here. So we've got every reason to be anxious about this. And in, in classic O'Brien style, we very, very quickly get that resolved because Stephen sees as he walks up to this person standing by the bridge here, person in the distance holding a book, he recognizes him. And we get straight to it. We, we think Stephen could have got there sooner, but we get straight to it. He says, Duhamel, I'm happy to see you again. Ah. Oh. And Duhamel, of course, was the spy in France who had escorted Stephen and Diana and Jack and Yagiello out of the Temple prison and across France. And all of a sudden, this is a different scenario. This is somebody who's really, really exchanged trust on a deep level with Stephen in the past. Somebody who we know has connections with this, as you say, Mike, this uh, kind of crypto-royalist faction in the world of the, the, the kind of emigre French government. He's sorry that he'd picked such a remote location. He says he wasn't sure who he was meeting. Duhamel, for his part, is really happy to see Stephen as well and tells him not to worry about the location. 
He's been hunting here with a friend before. And we get this very telling remark. When Stephen asks him if he likes to hunt, Duhamel replies, yes, although I far prefer fishing. Sitting on the bank of a quiet stream and watching a float seems to me present happiness itself. And I, I love this little analogy here, this suggestion that what spies like to do is not hunting, but fishing. And neither Stephen or Duhamel are, are our natural secret agent types. And I think that the idea of them just sort of sitting in, in the shadows by the edge of a lake, watching a float bobbing by in the darkness. I think that's a very a very close description of our idea of the kind of agent. Um, hunting, hunting is what people do by land. Hunting is what Jack Aubrey does, you know, crashing through the forest with his blunderbuss, shooting himself in the foot and getting into trouble and falling into bear traps. That's hunting. But fishing, this is the kind of thing that Stephen and Duhamel do. And, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the new Bond film to catch some of those watching the float scenes. Yeah, not so yeah. much. <laughs> not so much. There's a, there's a twist at the end worthy of O'Brien, by the way. Oh, nice. It's worth seeing. It's worth seeing. Well it's, done. Let's just say it's a really, really handsome tribute to Daniel Craig. And I think very, nice. very well deserved. But I'm going to say no more. See it in a local movie theater near you. Oh, brilliant. Well done. But I I do somehow think, as you say, Ian, that, you know, intelligence agents, the fishing, I think that's the, the more true to type metaphor yeah, for me. I, I like yeah, that. I think so. Yeah. Well, Duhamel apologizes for this sort of roundabout communication with Stephen, you know, sending him this bag of bones and everything. He says that the last time he was in London, he had found Stephen's inn destroyed. So now we're getting a little bit of a, ah, so why didn't he just, you know, Stephen and Duhamel, why didn't he just come see him and everything? So the inn's destroyed. Duhamel's not sure how to reach him. He says, you know, Brian writes, I could scarcely carry this to the Admiralty without fear of compromising you. He brought out a little packet of jeweler's cotton, opened it, and there in the strong light was the immediate blaze of the diamond, no longer a memory, but actual and far more brilliant, far bluer than Stephen's mental image, a most glorious thing, cold and heavy in his hand. Thank you, says Stephen, slipping it into his breeches pocket after a long moment's silence. I am very much indebted to you, Duhamel. And, and I love this. Duhamel says, you know, that was the bargain. You know, that, hey, you know, I'm just, kind of, I told you I'd do it. I'm doing it. And he says, don't thank me, but thank Donglaire. That, that Duhamel uh, goes on to say, you know, you may call him a pederast if you choose, but he's the only man of his word I know among all that rotten bunch of self-seeking politicians. He insisted upon its return. And, and we can kind of remember back to chapter 11 in Surgeon's Mate. Uh, this is the top man that Duhamel worked for and worked with on Stephen and Jack's escape. Another one of uh, Talleyrand's man. He and Duhamel and a cloaked officer had surprised Stephen and Jack and Yangelo by kind of walking through this locked door into the prison cell one evening. And, you know, he's the man that gave Stephen this ring, this amethyst that he then later used to wed Diana. Um, and, and that was kind of a proxy for, you know, since I can't give you the blue Peter now, and I will get it to you later, you hold on to my ring here. So Dongler was a friend of Lamont. And if we remember him, he was the homosexual man that Diana stayed with, you know, a friend of Stevens that Stephen had placed Diana with. 
And Stephen talked in that book about this kind of network of these folks and who were very influential and knowledgeable and kind of had their own code here. So, you know, just like um, Diana was protected by Le Mans in Paris, here is, you know, Dungler making sure the bargain gets fulfilled and, and charging Dumas with taking this over here. Yeah, I, I love the fact that we've got very, very up close and first person and kind of tactile with Stephen here. We had that with Jack in the in the moment of going into the pillory in the last chapter. And O'Brien's told us about the the color and the light of it and the feel and the, the coldness of it in his hand. And he he does this quite rarely. He doesn't write so poetically and uh, in that tactile way very often. But we are meant to be right there with Stephen, really, really struck by the return of this this glorious stone back into Stephen's hand. And Stephen is very, very sure that he wants to make his acknowledgements, he says, to Danglars. He says he's sure the lady, meaning Diana, will want to do the same. And so Stephen and Duhamel walk back toward town together. And after some time in silence, Stephen says that I, I know questions are out of place in what we do, but he asks if it would be safe for Duhamel to come and have a cup of coffee. And Duhamel says it is safe. Everyone in London except for two men think that Duhamel works for Monsieur de Lille, the uh, emigre Frenchman. But Duhamel must head right now back to Hartwell in Buckinghamshire. Stephen thinks he'll catch the coach in plenty of time. But then Duhamel gets into this really deep reflection on the life of a spy. And this, this is another um, Le Carré moment of spy turning to spy and say, saying, let's, let's just look at our lives. His voice changing, Duhamel says, our calling, oh, oh Maturin, do you not grow sick? of the perpetual lies and duplicity, the perpetual bad faith, not only directed against the enemy, but against other organizations and within the same group. Duhamel's face was greyer now, and it twitched with the strength of his emotion. The struggle for power and political advantage and the falsity and betrayal, right and left, shifting alliances, no faith or loyalty. There is a plan for sacrificing me, I know. My correspondent here in London, the man I was shooting with, was sacrificed. Though that was only for money, whereas mine is to prove my chief's loyalty to the emperor. You were going to be sacrificed in Brittany, like, like we had always suspected, Mike. I could not have saved you since it was Lucan's people who had arranged Madame de la Feuillade's affair. But as you did not go, I suppose you know all about that. With one accord, this is talking now about Stephen and Duhamel as they're walking. With one accord, they turned about and walked back over the grass. Duhamel still very down on his his perception of his world and, and, and spying. I am sick of it all, said Duhamel. That is one of the reasons I am so glad to be finished with this particular mission so cleanly. Something straight and clean at last. He threw out his hands in a gesture of disgust and cried, Listen, Maturin, I want to be shot of it all. I want to go to Canada, to Quebec. And Mike, to pause for a minute in this very serious moment, which of us hasn't thought that at some point in our lives, eh? <laughs> Anyhow, Duhamel goes on. If you can arrange it, I will give you the equivalent. And he means the equivalent of the Blue Peter Diamond. I will give you the equivalent ten times over. Ten times the equivalent. And here he's now not talking actually about money. He's talking about information. I know something of your affairs and I give you my word that what I can tell you touches your organization and Captain Aubrey very closely. 
Whoa. So, Mike, I don't know, maybe one or two of our listeners need to take a break and uh, and check their flights for Canada. What do you say? Oh, I think that's a great idea. You know, let me let me tell you, where I live, we think about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy taking a couple of moments away. We'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from the break. I hope everybody's bid online. Book your flights to old Quebec. Yeah, some great times there. So Stephen is, you know, he's here with Duhamel and he looks at him objectively. And so he's considering Duhamel's offer and he considers it and says he'll try to arrange it. And he asks where they can meet the next day. And Duhamel says that they can meet anywhere since only two people know who he really works for. And Stephen suggests blacks. And Duhamel looks at him funny and clarifies across from buttons. And then he looks suspicious for a split second. And and then he's okay. And they agree to meet at six o'clock. By the way, I really love this moment. And it's one of those moments you can really only enjoy when you know what's coming in the association with buttons. But for a moment there, Duhamel's looking at Stephen going, hold on a minute. The fact that you know about this club and this location makes me doubt whether in fact you're part of this conspiracy that I'm actually helping you to unravel. And he has this kind of head spinning, are there mirrors within mirrors within mirrors moment. But I love the fact that O'Brien says that that, that confusion cleared and on they go. Yes. Stephen gets a coach to Durant's hotel and leaves word for Captain Dundas, our old friend, Hennage Dundas. Dundas is out and he returns in a few hours. Many of the naval folks who are staying there stop by and talk with Stephen to share their kindness for Jack. And we get this little warm reminder of all this great uprising of goodwill and solidarity and kind of fellowship for Jack. It's really great. Stephen and Hennage eat their dinner together and then speak privately. And this is a really well-met moment here because Stephen says that since Hennage sails for North America on Monday, maybe he can carry a man who has information that can help Jack. Maybe Hennage can carry this man to Canada. So it's great. In the final chapter of a, of a novel with a complex plot that these two pieces come together at this great moment, Hennage on the way to the North American station and Duhamel hoping for passage to Canada. They talk about it. Stephen says he can't share everything that he knows with Hennage, but he does show him the blue Peter, tells him the story and points out how this demonstrates Duhamel's character and his good standing and affirms that he could have made off with the stone. Duhamel could have just taken the stone from Donglar and headed away with it, a portable fortune, he calls it, on his way to Canada, but had stopped on his way to Hartwell to give it to Stephen. And by the way, I also like the implied tribute the implied compliment to Hennage Dundas. This says Stephen feels like it helps Hennage Dundas to be a little bit on the inside of this secret. And he knows that Hennage appreciates the kind of honor and the kind of trustworthiness that Duhamel showed. So this makes me grow a little bit more in my love for Hennage Dundas here. Um, he assures Hennage that Duhamel's not a criminal. He's not a Bonapartist. He's just somebody who, um, Stephen's borrowing Duhamel's own words pretty much verbatim here, is someone who's sick of his colleagues' bad faith, their dissensions and their dissimulation, and wants to make a clean and sudden break. 
And clearly, it's the opportunity to help Jack that I think is really landing with uh, Dundas here. So he agrees. He gives Stephen a note for Duhamel that'll give him passage on board the ship as Hennage's guest. Hennage's glad that Duhamel will remain in his cabin during the voyage. And and like this, he and Stephen talk about the accent, and the, they describe to themselves that uh, Duhamel has a North British dialect, which, of course... Is nonsense. Duhamel has a French accent, but they can kind of tell themselves that they can justify that to the world as being some obscure flavor of Scots. He says it's against regulations to carry a foreigner, dot, dot, dot. But by the way, a Scottish person is just about on the inside of the pale as far as being a foreigner is concerned. Stephen says it's also against regulations to carry a young woman on board, foreign or domestic. And that's clearly a little barb aimed at Hennish Dundas, who's not been averse to the company of the fairer sex on Her Majesty's ships in the past. So Hennage wisely changes the topic and uh, he, he knows he's been done and the deal is in place. The next day, Stephen is thinking about this plan and he realizes, you know, kind of he's just jumped into this and gone with it, but it's completely professionally imprudent and personally unwise. I mean, he could compromise himself. He could be accused of a crime, really a capital crime, and O'Brien writes, he was relying solely on his instinct, yeah. and his instinct was by no means infallible. Mm. Sometimes it was affected by his wishes, and before now, it had deceived him very painfully. He reassured himself from time to time by looking at the splendid diamond in his pocket like a talisman. And he spent the afternoon in the Covenant Garden's hummums, his sparse frame sweating in the hottest room until he could sweat no more. Ah. So it's funny, that, that's a little word that just gets dropped in there, the, the hummums. And it, it's written, it, it's inevitable, of course, when you go to Covent Garden, you go to the hummums. But Mike, what in the world is a hummum, really? I, I, I wondered the same thing. And I thought, what? And, and it turns out that it was, of course, a hotel back in Covent Garden, right there at the end. A formal brothel <laughs> became a hotel. And that hummam from from the Arabic word signifies either a brothel or a bath. And and this thing, uh, there's a, a book Peter Cunningham has, a handbook of London from 1850, with a caption on one picture there. It says, the building to the left of the market at the beginning of Russell Street is the Hummums Hotel. And we find out later it, it had a sweating bath or a place for sweating. Um, Hummum sometimes being used to refer to a Turkish bath. So well done, Patrick O'Brien. Yeah, good good find with the book and the picture as well. That's awesome. <laughs> so it, it's funny how the, the, the passage of time is really, really slowing down here. The passage of time is we're going minute by minute in first person with Stephen, just like we went minute by minute with Jack as we led up to the pillory scene. It's 6 p.m. If, if this was a Jason Bourne movie, we'd have a little ticker across this, the bottom of the screen again. Beep, 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 6 p.m. Black's St. James's Street. Um, Duhamel arrives on the steps of Black's Club. He's carrying a packet. And Stephen intercepted him and took him up to a room overlooking St. James's Street. And this is where they're going to see the final moments in the chapter, Mike, the final moments in the novel play out. Stephen says that he's arranged passage for Duhamel to Halifax on the Eurydice as the captain's guest and suggests that Duhamel do as Stephen has arranged, which is to stay in his cabin and practice his Scots accent uh, and, and claims seasickness and speak as little as possible. He gives Duhamel this introductory note that Hennage has written 
Joanna looks around the room and sees one aged man. And clearly this is a signal that says, Stephen, I'm not sure that we're alone here and perhaps we should be careful about what we say. And Stephen says, ah, that's okay. A, this person is deaf. B, this person is an Anglican bishop and Joanna can speak freely as if Anglicanism is a free pass. (laughs) Ah, an Anglican bishop, said Duhamel. Quite so. By the way, this reminds me of a joke. Um, There was a very famous British politician in the 1970s called George Brown, who was for a while in the Foreign Office, and he was a famous boozer. And the story goes that uh, he this this is a story i think it was either peru or chile where he's um he's at this cocktail reception and george brown the famously boozed up minister shimmies up to this gorgeous figure in a blue silk robe and says may i have the pleasure of the next dance and this figure says no and brown says why not and the figure says well a because you're a cabinet minister b because you're drunk and c because i'm the cardinal archbishop of lima so Oh, no. So almost certainly apocryphal, but I'm reminded of that idea of the the, the bishop as the soul of rectitude over there in the corner. Quite so, says Duhamel. I'm glad we are in this particular room, he adds, looking out onto the street. So we've got this little bird's eye view that we're looking over the shoulder of Duhamel and Stephen as we see what's about to play out on the street below. I, I really wondered about this comment here. It just it just caught me up, you know, for, for Duhamel to be saying, yeah, he's so pleased to be in a room with an Anglican bishop, and and you know I realized later you know the room is conveniently placed so that yeah. you know he's 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 happy for more than one reason. But I thought, why does O'Brien throw this in? Pleased with the room, presence of somebody who's deaf. Okay, because we're talking, but Anglican bishop. What's what's O'Brien saying here? I don't know, but yeah. You know, so if any listeners have an idea, I would love to hear this because I was fascinated by this. All right. Well. Duhamel starts to share the information that he's promised Stephen. So now that they know they're alone here and he wants to tell him about these three men, but he does not know all their names. And O'Brien writes, my correspondent here in London used the name of Palmer. And we're going, whoa, Palmer. Ah, we know him. But it was not his own. And although he was remarkably gifted in many ways, he betrayed himself in this. He did not always respond at once or naturally to his nom de guerre. The name of the second man will be familiar to you. It is Ray Andrew. For a considerable time, yeah, I know, deep breath on our part. Dumel goes on, for a considerable time, I knew him as Mr. Gray, but... He is not a good agent, and after a while, getting drunk, he gave himself away. He is not a good agent at all. And really, Matron, I wonder you did not detect him in Malta. Hmm. And boy, you can kind of, you know, I, I had that same reaction you had. And it, 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 I just, I just like, oh, my gosh. And Stephen has, I think, a similar reaction. Stephen bowed his head as the light came flooding in, blinding humiliatingly obvious. And Stephen says, I could hardly expect you to employ such a flashy, unreliable fellow. He mutters this. And Duhamel says, he is not without real abilities, but it is true. He is emotional and timid. He has no bottom. Stephen has said this before. And he would not only crack at the first severe interrogation, but he's liable to betray himself without any interrogation at all. So, 
you know, what a moment here. Stephen is now getting caught up with these things, so many of these things that we knew, Ray working with the French, right. and something they didn't know that Palmer worked for the French. And, and you know, this really, as we've said, takes Stephen aback because some of it is so humiliatingly obvious. Yeah, and and he's been, so th- th- this person who I'm, who Duhamel says is liable to betray himself without any interrogation at all. Stephen's been in the man's house face-to-face with potentially all the advantage in the world to get some kind of a confession or a, a, or a, a revelation out of him. And Stephen's completely been blindsided by this. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And Blaine and all of his crew doing this intensive investigation, and Ray is right under their nose the entire time. I'm, I'm, yeah, it's just amazing. So... Uh, Duhamel goes on and describes a little bit more. Another lovely bit of Patrick O'Brien retrospective exposition here. We should never have gone any distance, he says, with him, meaning Ray, if it had not been for his friend. The third man, whom I know only as Mr. Smith, a very highly placed man indeed, his reports were fairly worshipped in the Rue Villard. More highly placed than Ray, asks Stephen. Oh, yes, and of much greater force of mind. When you see them together, it is like master and pupil. A hard man, too. And by the way, Mike, the the genius behind this plan to put Ellis Palmer in play and then kill him and dump him faceless in the river, this this was the action of a hard man, I think, rather than somebody somebody without bottom like Ray. Duhamel, meanwhile, looked at his watch. I must be brief, he said. However, although Smith has great abilities, and Ray, enough to get himself a name, they are both poor, expensive, and given to very high play, and although they are both nominally, and I believe genuinely volunteers, they are both constantly asking for money. After the reorganisation in the Rouvillard, supplies were very much reduced. They sent appeal after appeal. And by the way, Mike, we we heard Ray appealing way back in uh, Treason's Harbour for another little subvention from uh, from headquarters. They sent appeal after appeal, each more pressing, but they were told that their recent information had been insufficient in quantity and quality, which was true. They replied that in another few weeks, Sir Joseph Blaine would finally be disposed of, (gasps) and they would then have full access to the committee, and their information would be of the greatest possible value. By the way, we get no response, no reaction at all from Stephen to any of this. We, We can guess, though. Right. Duhamel looked at his watch once more and held it to his ear. In the meantime, he said, they mounted the stock exchange fraud. There we have it. Wow. Wow. And by the way, th- this this is completely fanciful. Like we said before, that, that although the stock exchange fraud was real and connected to Cochrane in the same way that it's connected to Jack Aubrey, this particular part of the story, I think, has nothing to do with the, with the real Cochrane timeline. Although, it says of Stephen, although he felt Duhamel's eye piercing upon him, Stephen could not entirely conceal his emotion. His heart was beating so he felt its pulsation strong in his throat. And then again, he was mostly deeply shocked at his dull stupidity. The whole thing was so evident. And Mike, it, it's evident to Stephen, and it's it's a, still a great moment of rele- revelation for us as we realise how all these layers have been interacting in ways that we kind of suspected but hadn't really known for sure. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's Ray and the French together who put together the stock exchange fraud, and right. and perhaps you know Mr. Smith who you know kind of came up with this, and, and Palmer who executed it, and that explains you know all the planning, all the resources, all the organization, and all the incredible vindictiveness against Jack, who was clearly now the first and foremost target, and a camouflage for Ray to make his own money while then taking advantage of the ministry's desire to do in the radicals like General Aubrey and his friends, which was, you know, another good shield for Ray. So we're back in this conversation in the window between between Stephen and Duhamel. You seem preoccupied by the time, says Stephen, now that Duhamel's pointed out, he's looking at his watch. Yes, said Duhamel, shifting his chair nearer to the window. Of course, I'm sorry that your friend was put to such distress, but apart from that, the objective observer must confess that the affair was neatly handled. You may say that, given the exact knowledge of Captain Aubrey's movements and of his father's connections, together with the possession of an agent as capable as Palmer, the thing was simple. But that would be shallow reasoning. Maturin, you will not be offended if perhaps I run out in a few minutes and return somewhat later? Never in life, said Stephen. At one time, I thought they had succeeded entirely, and although, of course, they could not make much money with about betraying themselves, they did clear enough for their most pressing debts. I'm like, we, we half spotted this a couple of chapters ago, and Stephen spots it now. That was when Ray paid what he owed me, reflected Stephen, his shame renewed. But that did not suffice, said Duhamel. They made two other proposals. The first, that some surprisingly large bills should be negotiated on the northern market. Again... We saw that, or at least Blaine saw signs of it. And the second, that you should be handed over at Lorient. This is this Madame de Feuillard expedition. The proposal about the bills was either declined or withdrawn. I am not sure which. And you were not delivered. Lucan was extremely angry. He had gone down to Brittany himself, had cut off even the monthly grant. They are now in a very bad way, and they have prepared what they assert is an unusually valuable report. Once again, Duhamel looked at his watch. He went on, Palmer told me about the stock exchange business in great detail when we were fishing in a stream not far from Hartwell. And we get this nice, nice little generous aside about Palmer in the eyes of Duhamel. He was a man you would have liked, Maturin. He could make a kingfisher perch on his hand. He had all sorts of qualities, but that was the last time I ever saw him. A very large reward was offered. That was Stephen's doing, by the way. Mm -hmm. The chase became so hot, and so they killed him, in case he should be discovered or betrayed. They did not ship him away. They killed or had him killed. That I could not possibly forgive. It was criminal. Gosh, it's, it's amazing all the layers we're now unraveling here. And we're getting a little bit deeper into why Duhamel wants out. His friend Palmer was killed when it's not necessary. He watched them try to kill Stephen, Stephen's own colleagues setting him up. And Duhamel knows that he's, you know, being set up to be killed in France so his boss can show his loyalty to Bonaparte. Uh, you know, this is a goldmine of information. So the question becomes, how can Stephen and Blaine put it to use for Britain, for Blaine, and for Jack's benefit? Duhamel, said Stephen in a low voice, moving his chair closer so that it almost touched the glass of the window. Can you give me any tangible, concrete proof? No, said Duhamel, not at present, but I hope I shall be able to do so in five minutes' time. 
He went on talking about Palmer, a man he had evidently loved dearly, but his words came somewhat at random. They stopped in mid-sentence. He caught up his packet and said, forgive me, Matron, watch, watch at the window. And he hurried from the room. Wow. Uh, you know, I'm nailed at this, right? Yeah, what's going on? What's happening? We've got literally a second by second, something new is going to be revealed. So we're back with the point of view of Stephen. Stephen, it says, saw him appear on the pavement below, turn left, walk fast up towards Piccadilly, cross a great hazard amongst the carriages and stroll down on the other side of the street towards St. James's Park. Almost opposite Stephen's window at the height of Buttons Club, he paused and looked at his watch again as though he were waiting for someone. Stephen's eye ran down the street and among the people walking up from the park and from Whitehall, he saw Ray and his taller, older friend Ledward arm in arm. They disengaged themselves to take off their hats as Duhamel approached, and all three stood there talking for a few moments. Then Ledward gave Duhamel an envelope in exchange for the packet, and they parted. The two going into buttons, and Duhamel, not without a slight glance at Stephen's window, back towards Piccadilly. Oh, Mike, so here we go. This is the proof. Intelligence delivered from Ray and Ledward to Duhamel as Stephen watches, you know, literally red-handed. Uh, Duhamel is leaving for Canada on Monday. And even if Duhamel stays, this is the word of a French agent and perhaps Stephen, the, the friend of a disgraced captain, against the word of Ray and Ledward. So even though we, through the eyes of Stephen, know really, really clearly and for sure what's going on, we can't really say that they've got proof. We can't really say that. They've, they've done all the maneuvers that they need to do to get around Ray and Ledward. Ledward is presumably a highly placed man from all we've heard, and we've started to hear about him just in passing, only this book. So what, Mike, what what's going to have to happen to make this stick? We're, we're going to have to watch these two. Is this going to mean that Jack can get vindicated? Can, can we get Blaine secure and back in full power? How is this going to play out? You know, and I'm, I'm just gnawing at the bit here. I can't wait. You know, I'm ready to keep turning those pages. And, and you know, we go. Stephen ran downstairs, seized pen and paper at the porter's desk, wrote fast and cried, Charles, Charles, pray send a lad with this to Sir Joseph Blaine's in Shepherd Market. Haste, post haste. There's not a moment to be lost. Why, sir, said the hall porter, smiling at him. Never fret yourself about haste, post haste. Here's Sir Joseph himself coming up the steps, a leaning on Colonel Warren's arm. I'm thinking, yes, this is it. This is what we need. Colonel Warren's there. You know, Sir Joseph Blaine's there. Here's the intelligence. And that is the last words of Chapter 10 of Reverse of the Metal. No! (laughs) Blaine and Colonel Warren, the horse guards, who's the guy who's the member of the committee right there. We can catch Ledwood and Ray right now. We've got a Jason Bourne moment in the waiting. All they've got to have is a, a carriage chase and a grapnel shinny up a balcony somewhere. And we're back in. Right. Oh, my uh, gosh. Cliffhangers ain't in it. <laughs> no, definitely cliffhangers ain't in it. You know, so uh, I'm, I'm like, you know, O'Brien, you're, you're kind of killing me here. So I immediately immediately started the next book. And of course, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what happened. <laughs> See me, and Mike, it's, it's been really great. I've really enjoyed Reverse of the Medal. I, I think I've, I was for sure looking forward to chapter, chapter 10 uh, and, and, and the big moment for Jack, but I'd, I hadn't remembered quite as clearly all the really great twists and turns in a book that is more or less land bound. We haven't had any right. real proper naval action. We've had a bit of a journey for Jack and Stephen. 
but all of this great intrigue, all of this really great emotional darkness and complexity, all these really, really great moments for Stephen as well as for Jack. Um, it's been really enjoyable. And it, it's interesting to speculate, just as we speculated about the surgeon's mate, about wh- where the name reverse of the medal might have come from. Yeah, I, it's a great question. I know I, I, I found some discussion on Reddit about it. Yeah. Um, you know, this this person who wrote on Reddit, albeit seven years ago, so he says, you know, I always thought that this was the second greatest title of the series, Reverse of the Metal, first being The Surgeon's Mate and its triple meaning. But, you know, he said that, you know, he had taken it to be a reflection of the theme that had been recurring throughout a few of the novels that preceded it, that Jack Aubrey's luck had been reversed. And then he's wondering, you know, or, or are there other meanings? So what, what do you think, Ian? Well, it, it can mean a few things. In in Merriam-Webster, the definition is that the reverse of the medal is a, a phrase that denotes an opposite or a less favorable aspect of an affair or question. So um, Jack Aubrey and Stephen uncovering things and making progress and returning home, potentially covered in glory, that medal gets reversed. I've got to say, it, it also strikes me as a kind of a reverse reverse. For me, the moment of the pillory for Jack is the kind of really gleaming, fabulous, warm... Um, life-affirming reverse behind all the darkness that's gone so far in the book. And what's the medal? Is that a reference to Jules and to the Blue Peter, for example, and the reverse and the returning of the of the of the valuable coin? Is it a reference to a signal of distress because we reverse or rather invert flags in the in naval signaling practice to say I'm in distress? Is this a signal? that someone's in distress because Jack for sure has been in distress and he continues to be in a certain kind of distress right now. Right. You know, one, uh, you know, a Reddit user pressure serial again, seven years ago says, you know, I think the phrase echoes the degradation ceremony that an officer had to endure cashiering during which they're stripped of their ranks of Mark that, that Cochrane, you know, that the basis for Jack here, partial basis had to suffer through this ritual being a Lord when he found himself guilty of manipulating the stock market so, you know, Jack being, you know, perhaps kind of separated from the Navy, struck off the list, don't know if, you know, any of his medals are taken away, but certainly his naval fortune and his naval seniority reversed here. Yeah, um, yeah it's, I, I mean, ultimately, we have talked a little bit and, you know, some folks talked a bit too about, you know, it also about Jack's friends, who's with him, who's against him. Who's showing, you know, who shows up? How do they show up? All the reverses there. Certainly his father is showing up and then abandoning him then. It's a, yeah, what a, what a complex, you know, layers and lines of not only plot, but emotion. A great, a great novel. It is. It's been fabulous. And we've had a little touch of the true friendships that are supporting Jack. We've had Pullings and we've had Dundas. We haven't heard immediately and directly for a while now from the sailors, from the seamen. And I wonder how they're doing. I wonder how many of them we're going to see aboard the surprise at Shelmerston. I wonder how many of them are going to join Jack's crew for this South American adventure. Perhaps we should turn the page of the next novel. Perhaps, Mike, next week it could be time. What do you think? For a little bit more, Patrick O'Brien? Oh, I would love that of all things.
cliffhangers ain't in it. <laughs> yeah, definitely cliffhangers ain't in it.